Welcome to the podcast of Harvest Baptist Church in Harvest, Alabama. We invite you into our sanctuary as we dive into God's Word with our pastor, Dr. Al Perringer. But if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 9. We're going to be in Mark chapter 9 this morning. And for some of us, maybe we're familiar with what's going on in Mark chapter 9. And if we're not, then hopefully by this, in this morning, we'll be familiar with what's going on in Mark uh, chapter 9. Uh, my family and I, when I say my family and I, it's me and Sarah, Connor, and Savannah, uh, my mom and dad and my brother and his wife and their four soon-to-be uh, five kids. Uh, we all go on a family vacation every summer, and we often go to uh, Gatlinburg, the Great Smoky Mountains. It's a wonderful time. We get a cabin. We go out there, and it's just a wonderful time a week to spend together. But one of my favorite things about being out in Gatlinburg, being out in the Great Smoky Mountains, is when you have the opportunity to see the mountains. If you've ever been out there, you know what I'm talking about. You just see how wonderful they are and how beautiful they are. And it's one of those sights I can like just stand there and just stare out and just be mesmerized by what I am seeing. Now, this summer, we went, it was about three weeks ago we were there, and uh, Connor and I, we went up and rode the, uh, rode the ski lift up to the sky bridge. Now, if you've never done the sky bridge, I recommend doing the sky bridge. It is a wonderful experience. You get in the ski lift, you ride up to the top, and when you get there, there is this long bridge, and what makes it so cool, as you start walking across the bridge, it's this wooden bridge. In the middle, the wood becomes glass, right? So you're standing over, and you're, you're just like hovering over, and you look down, and you're like, wow, this glass breaks free, I, I'm going to die. You know, you can see your doom and your death. So if you're afraid of heights, this may not be for you, right? But if heights don't bother you, this is a really cool thing. So we get to the other side, and there's like this lookout area, and we are just, I mean, you see Gatlinburg looks very tiny, and you just see mountain ranges, and it is a wonderful sight. If I showed you a picture, you would look at the picture, probably go, that's cool. The picture would do no justice to what we were looking at. Now this morning in Mark chapter 9, we're going to see Peter, James, and John. They're going to get their very own mountain experience. Now their mountain experience is unlike any other mountain experience known to man. The things that they're going to see and what they are going to witness is one of those things that no one else on the planet has ever experienced. It's one of those things to where if you were to tell someone what you saw, they probably wouldn't believe you anyways. Uh, Their mountaintop experience is one that is life-changing. So you have your Bibles. We're going to start in verse 1 of chapter 9, and we're going to read all the way through verse 13. Starting in verse 1, it says this, Then he said to them, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves to be alone. He was transfigured in front of them, and his clothes became dazzling, extremely white, as no launderer on earth could whiten them. Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, because he did not know what to say since they were terrified. A cloud appeared overshadowing them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. 
they kept his word to themselves in questioning what rising from the dead meant. Then they asked him, why do these scribes say Elijah must come first? Elijah does, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did whatever they pleased to him, just as it written about him. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, as we dive into Mark chapter 9, we pray, Lord, that our hearts and our ears are open to hear the words that you have for us this morning, Lord. But I pray this morning, God, that we make much of your name, Father Lord, through everything that we do and say this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, in Mark chapter 9, in order for us to have a good understanding of what happens in Mark chapter 9, it's important that we know what happens at the end of Mark chapter 8. Anytime you're studying in Scripture, it's, it's, it's important to take the passage you're looking at and look at the passage and the verses that's, going, that's, that's around this particular passage because then you get a clear understanding of what's really going on. So in order to understand Mark 9, we need to understand what's going on at the end of Mark chapter 8. And to that, I want to paint a, a little picture. A lot of us have people we like to follow. Uh, we have leaders we look up to. Some of these leaders, they might be, uh, maybe you look up to a boss at work. Maybe it's a coach. Maybe it's a teacher you once had. Maybe it's just a public figure that you're like, I think they're really cool, like the things they say. But all of us have a leader we look up to. And the one thing we know about leaders is leaders are very good at communicating their vision and giving it to their team in a way that makes them excited to do the things that they're going to do. One of my favorite things to do, just like most of you guys, I love watching sports. Now, if you're watching sports on ESPN, they do this thing that's really cool. They will show the coach's pregame speech or their halftime speech. You ever watch them do this? Now, I'm sitting on my couch drinking sweet tea, eating M&Ms because I'm healthy, and I'm listening to this coach give his speech, and by the end of the speech, there's some coaches, the end of it, I'm ready to go play for him. I'm like, man, let's do this. Give you, let's, let's lace him up. Let's get out there. Now, that wouldn't be a good idea because I would absolutely get annihilated by these dudes. Like, these dudes are huge. But they communicate in such a way, it pumps them up. It gets them ready, okay? Good leaders do that. So we're going to paint a, another picture real quick. Let's say there's this leader that all of us are really high on. We, we love the way, the things that they say. We think they are wonderful. We think that uh, the vision and things that they are going to do will change the course of human history if they can just be, get in that certain leadership spot we're all in them to the point that we listen to their speeches we hang on to every words we have bought their merchandise we have put their signs in our yards we are all in and ready to go with this leader and let's say this leader goes to give a speech we're there we're ready to hang on to every word and be captivated by the words that come out of his mouth the only thing is gets ready to speak, and the very first thing out of his mouth is, I'm going to die. Probably not a good way to start a speech. You're going to gain interest, sure, but what a buzzkill, right? You walk up, I'm going to die, and you're thinking, what a strange opening statement. The very next thing that comes out of his mouth is this, if you follow me, you're probably going to die too. Now, if you walked into your team meeting tomorrow morning at work and you said, hey, guys, if I'm going to die, by the way, if you follow me, I'm going to die too, your team's probably not going to be there with you, right? If you had someone you were wanting to follow and they said, hey, I'm going to die, but if you follow me, you're going to die too, we're probably going to be like, no, I'm out. It's not for me. This is where we find Jesus at the end of Mark chapter 8. In verse 29, we see where Jesus asks this question, says, who do you say I am? And Peter makes a proclamation. He says, you are the Messiah. 
which tells that Peter had an understanding of who Jesus is. So he understands that Jesus is the Son of God, and Peter's already left everything to follow this guy, so he's all in. Jesus, Peter is very pro-Jesus at this point. He's all in on this Jesus guy. He understands that he is the Son of God, and he makes this statement. And then we find Jesus, he starts to tell about his death, and Peter, I have a phrase about Peter, Pete's going to Pete, all right? We know Peter. Peter does not have self-control when it comes to his mouth oftentimes. So Pete's going to Pete. So Jesus starts talking about his death. Peter grabs Jesus, pulls him to the side as if he's going to correct Jesus, right? It doesn't work out for Peter because what does Jesus say? He says, get behind me, Satan. Now, I don't know about you, but being called Satan is probably not a compliment, especially coming from the mouth of Jesus. And these are the words that he says, get behind me, Satan. And all this leads into Jesus making this speech, and this is one that we have all heard before, starting in verse 34 of Mark chapter 8. It says, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. But one thing that we can be for sure about is this. The call to follow Jesus is a call to die. The call to follow Jesus is a call to die. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that, it's, that you're going to suffer a, you know, a physical death. Now, we're all going to die physically, but it doesn't mean that just because you're following Jesus, you're going to die for the sake of the gospel. There are people who absolutely will face that, but that's not what we're talking about here. When it says it's a call to die, following Jesus is a call to die. It's a, it's a call to die to self, die to this world, and die to our own selfish wants and desires. We put all that aside for the sake of the gospel. And this leads us right up into uh, John chapter 9. In verse 1 it says, it says, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. You can find people um, debating this verse and what it means when it says that there are some standing here. Remember, he is addressing the disciples. And so there are people who argue, what does it mean? It says, there are some sitting here who will not taste death to the seed of the kingdom of God. Now, what Jesus is not saying, that there are certain disciples who are going to get the Enoch and the Elijah treatment and not die at all. They're just going to go straight into heaven. That is not what it's saying. What it's saying is this. He is setting up Peter, James, and John for what they're about to witness. When he says they will not die to see the kingdom of God, they are about to see a glimpse of the kingdom of God. They're about to see a glimpse of who Jesus is really is because Peter, James, and John are about to take a trip up the mountain with Jesus and get to experience what the Bible refers to as a transfiguration where Jesus is going to be in a form that they had not yet seen and in that they were going to taste what Jesus' real identity looks like. Now what's interesting is John is a part of this crew who goes up the mountain but only Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about the transfiguration. you think John would put that in there, but he does make a, a claim about it. In John 1.14, he says this. He says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed His glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, this passage in transfiguration is the story of seeing who Jesus really is. He, he's no longer... For a glimpse of time, he is no longer cloaked by the earthly limitations that he allowed placed on himself. Instead, for a glimpse, for a small moment of time, he is going to be seen as he really is. And Peter, James, and John 
they get to see the entire thing. Verse 2 says this, After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves to be alone. Have you ever wondered why it was always Peter, James, and John that went with Jesus? I mean, he had, he had the 12, but his inner circle was always Peter, James, and John. He never mixed it up. It was Peter, James, and John. That was his inner circle. And have you ever wondered why it was Peter, James, and John? We don't find an answer in Scripture. There's a couple of theories, right? Now, the one of them, probably the least likely one, is he may have just liked Peter, James, and John better. Believe it or not, it's actually okay to like other people more than others. The Bible tells us to love someone, tells us to love everybody, but liking is an option that we, could, that we could choose to do, right? So maybe he just liked Peter, James, and John better, but more than likely, it was Peter, James, and John because he was preparing them for the roles that they would play in the early church. Because Peter, James, and John, if you want to use this term, they would become, you know, like a rock star in the early church. Man, they would do some great things for the early church. And so he's probably preparing them for what they're going to see. And now what they see on the, on the mountain is really, really cool. Because you have Jesus who is now in this glowing state. You have Moses and you have Elijah. They probably don't understand fully what's going on. But what we see here is you have Moses who is in this instant, he is going to represent the, the law. And then you have Elijah, who's going to represent the prophets. And then you're going to have Jesus there, and he is the fulfillment of the law, and he is also the fulfillment of the prophetic promises. And so here it is, in James, John, and Peter, they're getting to witness this whole entire thing. And what I call this, I call this a 3-2-1 setup. You've got the three dudes, Peter, James, and John, who would become heroes of their faith in their own right, get to witness Moses and Elijah, and then Jesus, who is the center of everything. And they are here to witness these things. Now, there's an Old Testament reference to, um, to taking two or three witnesses. It's good to take two or three. There's an Old Testament reference to that. And Jesus, he takes his two or three witnesses, which is Peter, James, and John. And they get to see some incredible things. In Mark chapter 5, they see uh, Jesus resurrect a little girl in the garden when Jesus goes to pray before he is eventually arrested. Uh, Peter, James, and John go into the garden with them, and here they get to go onto the mountaintop and see Jesus as he truly is. Verse 3, his clothes became dazzling, extremely white, as no launderer on earth could ever whiten them. Shout out to those Bible launderers. Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and were talking with Jesus. If you read the Bible, you're going to come across the story of Moses. You're going to come across the story of Elijah. Peter, James, and John, they would know exactly who Moses and Elijah were. Like, you did not know. That time, you knew who these dudes were, right? Moses, he gives you the law, right? You have Elijah. He was the voice of God to the people. My, and not only that, Elijah gets a really cool ride into heaven. Coolest way to go to heaven ever, either, ever. A chariot of fire picks him up, and he gets escorted to heaven. That's how I want to go, right? Sounds really cool. So they would know exactly who these guys are. And we find that Jesus is in conversation with Moses and Elijah, and Peter, James, and John are probably sitting there 
thinking, what am I going to bring this conversation, right? But I'd be thinking. But we find Peter is going to do what you and I do. Peter is going to do exactly what you and I do. Uh, because they are having this conversation. What they're talking about, we are not sure. But Peter, being Peter, remember Pete's going to Pete, he is going to interrupt the conversation. And this is what he says. He says, Rabbi, it's good to be here. Well, duh, you know. This is really cool. Thanks for bringing us at the mountain, Jesus. I'm so glad that you invited us to come because this is really cool. Peter's just, just talking at this point. But why would Peter say these things? Because in verse 6 it says this, because he did not know what to say. He had no idea what to say, so Peter's idea was, you know what, I'm just going to open my mouth and start talking. I'm just going to start opening my mouth, and words are going to flow from my mouth because I'm Peter, and that's what I do. And at some point, Jesus had to been like, Peter, come on, man. Because now that Peter has let them know he is there, He's just going to start talking. One thing we, we, we know about Peter is sometimes Peter, he had issues trusting in God's plan. I and mean, we just saw in chapter 8 where Peter tried to redefine the death of Jesus. And sometimes Peter wrestled with these things because Peter was a, a stubborn, hot-headed individual. And so sometimes he... He had struggles with these issues. And the same thing goes, a lot of times you and I, we also have an issue trusting God's plan for our lives. There's not a single one who I could ask, have you ever trusted God fully with your plan for your life? Most of us would go, no, there's some point I have, I have struggled with trusting God's plan for my life. And part of that is because God's plan and our plan, they hardly ever go together. Like, the plan that we have for our life, God's plan hardly ever matches up with it. And sometimes for us, we struggle with that because we are selfish individuals and we want it our way. Like Bird King says, you can have it your way, even though they lie when they say that, right? But we want life to be our way. We want it to funnel through the things that we want to do. And as, as soon as God takes us and wants to move us in a different direction, that's when we step back and go, I don't think so, God. That's not what I'm going to do. I'm fine coming and hanging out, sitting in a pew. That's cool, God. I'm cool and talking about Jesus at church, Lord. But uh, this whole, you know, living my life as a testimony for you and, and excluding certain things in my life, I don't know about that one, God. Right? Or maybe God's putting a call in your life to, to serve him in missions and ministry. And then we're like, yeah, not part of the plan. And we start becoming like children. If you're like my kids, if you go to the store, I would highly recommend avoiding the toy aisles at all costs, especially the four-year-old. All right? Connor, you can reason with. Savannah, I might as well talk to this plant. I'm going to have better luck. All right? But what's the, what happens when a kid sees what they want? They want what they want, and they, all chaos breaks loose, right? Mine, give it to me. You don't love me anymore. Buy it for me. Do this, do that. Right? And then it escalates into screaming. And so, like, the grocery aisle knows what's going on, the toy aisle, because they can hear your child. 
But what's the best way for me to calm her down or the fastest way for me to calm her down is to give her exactly what you want. Just say, take it, go, we'll buy it, hush, right? Quick and easy. For most of us, we'd probably agree with this statement. The fastest way to ruin or spoil a child is to give them exactly what they want when they want it. Most of us agree that. The fastest way to spoil a child is to give a child what they want when they want it. So why do we expect God to do that for us? knowing that he knows things that we do not know. So why would we not trust him and align our lives with him? In verse 7, we see, A cloud appeared overshadowing them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. You notice he doesn't say this is awesome Moses or this is really cool Elijah. He says, this is my son. The Bible, whenever you're reading it, wherever you're reading it, where you're reading uh, books that Moses wrote, or you're reading Elijah, or you're reading Isaiah, or maybe you're reading Peter, James, and John, or Paul, or whoever it is that we think we wrote, he wrote Hebrews. Wherever you're reading in scriptures, you are reading the very words of Jesus. Wherever it is you are at. And if your understanding and interpretation of those words contradict the character of Jesus, redefines the expectations of Jesus, or takes away from the person of Jesus, then it needs to be reevaluated, reconstruction, and probably needs to be thrown away. If our ideas of who Jesus is doesn't line up with the Jesus that we see in Scripture, we probably should start the whole process over. Because one thing we know is that Jesus is the center of it all. And what you find is you have with Peter, James, and John, Moses, Elijah, you have Jesus. And that's almost the whole Bible right there, right? But Jesus is the center of Scriptures. He is the center of of the universe and nothing apart from jesus even matters we get so lost up trying to fear things out on our own we get so wrapped up trying to do things our own way and we forget that jesus is the one who is the center of it all and when he's not the center of it all It's us attempting to take the lead, and that becomes very problematic. In verse 8, we see, Suddenly, looking around them, they no longer saw anyone but Jesus, and that's because Jesus, again, he's the center of the universe. And You can kind of picture what's going on, and then all of a sudden, it's just them and Jesus again. Maybe a little let down, because you're like, man, that was cool. But why is it just still Jesus? Because everything is about Jesus. Nothing else comes close to comparing to who Jesus is. Nothing we could ever achieve could ever come close to who Jesus is because he is indeed the center of the universe. When you were in school, you're probably like me. You had uh, a time where you talked about space. I like space. Space is really cool. 
So it's probably time you started talking about space, and in that you probably did some kind of solar system project. You had to build a solar system, had to build the sun, the planets had to go around the sun, or whatever it might be. I, I remember, vaguely remember making a paper mache room, or moon, not a paper mache room, that would be really weird, All right, but a paper mache moon. I remember blowing up this balloon, and we started putting paper mache around it, and we started, had to paint it gray, had to make it look like the moon. The only problem is I'm not a very good, let's uh, just say this, when it comes to art, and crafts, God just left that out, all right? He just didn't give anything to me. Matter of fact, if you go down to the uh, nursery, you walk into the three-year-old nursery room, you will find kids who draw way better than I do, all right? I'm a stick figure kind of person. Whatever you tell me to draw, what's an animal, a person, a boat, it's going to be a stick figure, right? Unless it's a tree. I can draw a tree. That's about it. So my paper shaving room probably didn't look like, it probably looked like I, put, I glued paper to a balloon. That's probably what it looked like. But I remember we would learn about the moon, and this might come to a shock to some of you, but did you know the moon actually doesn't glow? Like there's nothing about the moon that makes it glow. There's nothing about the moon that makes the moon shine on its own. There's nothing about the moon that makes it illuminate this glowing presence. What is happening, again, I'm just blowing some of y'all's mind this morning, right? It is the sun that's reflecting through the moon that allows the moon to glow. So when we see the night sky illuminated by the moon or the ground is illuminated by the moon, we know that it's actually the sun shining through the moon. This is what we see going on right here with the transfiguration. Moses and Elijah are glowing, but they are not glowing under their own power. They are glowing because of whose presence they are in the midst of. If Moses and Elijah just appear, they probably are not glowing. But because Jesus is there and he is in his transfigured state, Moses and Elijah are glowing. And we see this in the Old Testament when Moses, he meets with God in the tent. When Moses comes out of the tent, what is happening? What's going on with Moses? The dude is glowing. There's nothing about Moses that would make him glow. I know sometimes we walk up to people, especially pregnant women, we go, what do we tell them? You're glowing. You're just glowing. You know? So we tell them. That's what's going on here. He has an actual glow, but it's nothing that Moses did. He didn't achieve some kind of super spiritual level that allows him to glow. He's glowing because of the presence of he was in inside of that tent. He was in the presence of God. So when he came out, there was still glowing left over, man. And here's the thing, Christians. We are called to be a light of the world. I don't want you to miss this. The more time we spend in his presence, the more that light is going to shine. The more that we spend in his presence, the more that light is going to shine. The more I spend in anything else, the more some other light is going to shine. If I spend time away from the presence of Christ and I'm doing things, whatever I'm doing, it is my light shining and not Jesus, which is not what God commands us to do. But when I spend time with him, because I'm spending time with him, I have no choice now but become more like him because that's just the natural reaction. You spend time with Jesus. He works on you, man. And what happens is, is he molds us in such a way that we are pointing other people to who Jesus is. But it all starts with what are we doing in our present when we are with him, when we are spending time with him. There's a difference between reading just to check off a box of a Bible reading plan. I got Monday done. That's cool. Those are good. 
don't not do that, right? Anytime you're in the Word of God, it's a good thing. But man, when we're really chasing after Him and pursuing after Him and spending time with Him, we can walk into our jobs, into our schools, and be a light for this dark world. Now, if you go up the mountain, you have to come down the mountain. I mean, maybe you know. I mean, if you live there, maybe cool stay. But if you've ever been to anywhere on a mountain, you have to come down for groceries eventually. You ever seen a grocery store on top of a mountain? No, you have not, right? So if you go up the mountain, at some point you have to come down. Same thing for Peter, James, and John. They've gone up the mountain. Now they've got to travel down the mountain. Now traveling down the mountain, what do you think the point of conversation had to been? The transfiguration. You don't see something like that and walk down the mountain. They're probably thinking, man, especially Peter, I cannot wait to tell other people about this. This is going to be dope, right? But can you imagine getting to the bottom of the mountain and you're trying to explain the things you saw? They're going to think you're crazy. Think about it. You come down the mountain and you say, hey, guys, Peter was probably like, would be like, hey, James, John, and I, we went up this mountain. Jesus was there and he started to glow. By the way, Elijah and Moses were there. They were glowing. Who's going to believe that story? Right? But on the way down, Jesus gives them this command. He says, uh, verse 9, As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Now, there's probably a, a few reasons. One of them being, they probably did not understand fully what was happening in that moment. We already saw Peter fumbling over his words because he didn't know. He's like, this is cool. So what did Peter do? He jumped in there. I'm going to build some booths. I'm going to build shelters for all three of you. Now, what he was probably doing was reference to uh, the festival of booths where the they would build these booths and they would hang out in them for seven days and kind of remember the great things God has done. So what he's doing is like, hey, I'm going to build these booths. Where he's getting material, we do not know, but he's going to do some booth building because he is fumbling over his words. So Jesus is probably thinking, in due time, you will be able to express everything you have seen, not what you think you saw, but what you actually saw. So no doubt, coming down the mountain, they were talking about the transfiguration. And then Jesus has them, causes them to change the subject. In verse 9 and 10 it says, As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept this word to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead meant. In order for you to rise from the dead, you have to die. That's just how it works, right? In order to raise the dead, you have to die. Uh, they were into the transfiguration here, but there is something that we like to call the distransfiguration of Jesus, and that is that starts at the garden and it carries all the way uh, to the cross. And these, both these points, transfiguration and the distransfiguration, are at play when we're considering the Jesus that we meet in Scripture. At the transfiguration, Peter, James, and John, they get to see Jesus' glory revealed, and they're mesmerized and excited about the things that they see, but when Peter, James, and John go into the garden with Jesus, they are bored. 
they are bored to the point of sleep. At the transfiguration, we see glory. At the garden, we see Jesus moved into being disgraced. At the transfiguration, we see Jesus clothed in white. At the cross, his clothes are shred apart. When Elijah is transfigured, they are sitting and watching, and they are seeing Jesus interact with Moses and Elijah. But when Jesus is crucified, he is disgraced. He's surrounded by murderers and thieves. When Jesus is transfigured, there is a bright cloud. When Jesus is crucified, darkness covers the land. But the one thing that remains through all that is the declaration of who Jesus is. At the transfiguration, we, f- we hear and see, see a voice from heaven claiming, this is my son. At the cross, when Jesus is crucified, we see a pagan Roman soldier look up at the cross and says, truly, this is the son of man, Jesus. He is present in both stories, and he is the one exactly who he claims to be. The mountain explains the hill, and the hill explains the mountain, and they're both the same person. Because we are aligning our lives with Jesus, we are aligning ourselves with every aspect of who he is. So here's the question we ask ourselves this morning. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Jesus is the Son of God who had a radical love for the very ones he created. The ones who he created to worship and adore him. The very ones, that's us by the way, throwing us all under that bus who rebelled and sinned against him. Jesus is the one who had a radical love that he, that the Bible tells that he who knew no sin became sin so he can lay down his life for us. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the very one who calls us to follow him for the sake of the gospel and the sake of making disciples. Who is Jesus? He is the one who calls us to abandon everything so then he could become our everything who is jesus he is the one who stepped into this sinful world taking our place on the cross to be treated like we should have been treated so that we could be treated like jesus who is jesus he's the same one from the beginning of time to the end of time he is the same. He will never change. And the same call that he placed on the lives of disciples is the same call that he place, places on your life and on mine. Some of us probably can, can remember the, the, the story of, we find in Luke chapter 5, where Jesus calls the very first disciples. This is Peter, James, John, Andrew's there too. They had been fishing all night. That's what they did. They were fishermen. They have been fishing all night. They caught absolutely nothing. Not even a bite. Not even a nibble. And they come in that morning and they find Jesus teaching on the shore and Jesus actually gets up into Jesus or Peter's boat to continue fish or continue uh, speaking. And this is not done on accident. This is designed by Jesus. He got in Peter's boat on purpose. And we got through. He actually told them, go back into the water, put down your nets and see what happens. They obey Jesus. They go into the water. They drop down their nets and they catch so much fish. They have to call another boat because that boat's about to sink. And so what they have here is they have what we call the catch of a lifetime. Probably no one has ever seen a catch like this before. This catch would have set them up for life, right? Peter could have retired a fisherman that day, probably. But what does Jesus 
called them to do right after that. He says, follow me. Put down your nets and follow me. And they leave this huge score to follow Jesus. And it's the same call he places on my life and your life. He says, follow me. Now, the disciples, when they chose to follow Jesus, you had these... If Jesus was taking resumes for the role of disciple, their resumes were not very impressive. One piece of paper, what do you do? Fish. Okay, what else can you do? Clean said fish? Right? Right? Not a very impressive resume. Where did you go to college? What's that? Right? Not a very impressive resume, but he called these dudes to follow him, and because of their faithfulness and their obedience to Jesus, they changed the course of human history. So here's the question I want to have. How were they able to change the course of human history? Because they were serious about who Jesus was. So here's the question I have for us. When are we going to get serious about Jesus? Or, 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 or another question better yet, what could Jesus do with our life if we are serious about him? Some of us may be thinking, I don't really have anything to offer. Well, neither did the disciples. I don't really have a Bible education. Neither did they. That comes in time with spiritual growth. So what could Jesus do with our life if we got serious about Jesus? And I want to make something very clear. If the only Jesus we get is on Sunday morning, then we are not very serious about Jesus. We're just playing church and we're missing the whole boat. Being serious about Jesus is a daily relationship with him allowing him to remove more of us so that we can become more like him so the question i have for us this morning is when are you and i going to stop playing with games with god and get serious about jesus and that's going to look different for all of us for maybe some of us maybe this morning for you to get serious about jesus is entering into relationship with jesus There's not a single person in this room that Jesus did not die for. There's no sin or accumulation of sins that the cross of Christ cannot cover. And so if you are sitting here today and you have never put your faith and your hope in Christ, let today be that day. And just a minute, the praise band is going to play. I'll be right here. I'd be glad to talk to you and point to you to who this Jesus guy is. Or maybe you're in this room like, you know, I've been a follower of Christ for some time, but I have not fully trusted him. I have not been very serious about him. May this morning lay our lives down at the foot of the cross and give him everything. May we pray, Lord, may you help me wrestle as I wrestle with these thoughts and these ideas. Can you, uh, I want to lay them down, Lord. Help me with my disbelief. Help me with my lack of trust. Show me the areas of my life, God, Lord, that I'm not fully committed to you so I can lay them down and become more and more like you. Or maybe you're thinking, you know what? I've been thinking about joining the church for a while. You know what? We would love to have you. That's you this morning, man. Come on down. We'd be glad to have you part of our faith family. Or maybe, you know what? God is dealing with something totally different with you this morning. Don't leave this place without taking care of the things that God is dealing with you in your life. If nothing else, maybe sit there and maybe praise Him for who He is. Because maybe you think about who Jesus is. Man, it just leads you to praise Him. To worship Him more because you understand just who He is. 
Thanks for listening to the podcast of Harvest Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at harvest-baptist.org or find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can also find info on our children's ministry on Facebook at Harvest Baptist Children's Ministry or on Instagram at KidsQuest underscore HBC. Our student ministries on Facebook at HBC Vertical Student Ministry and on Instagram at VSM underscore HBC. We welcome you to join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. We are located at 8999 Waltrana Highway in Harvest, Alabama. Thanks for listening and God bless.